welcome to Shoot the Flick, an official Paradoja podcast. I'm Frankie Sparks. And I'm Scott Eisenberg. And we are a married couple who like to shoot the shit about movies. That we do, that we do. And this week, it is the beginning of the end of the Harry Potter franchise. <gasps> That's right, we're watching Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part one. Yes, and this is the first movie to do that trend. Yes, you are right about that, I believe. Unlike a lot of other movies that glommed onto this trend, like Twilight and The Hobbit films, the book that this is based on actually warrants being split into two. One thing being is I never got this far in the series. I'm very wishy-washy on my rating for this one right now. Am I going to have to talk you up? No, 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 no. Not because of anything like the movie did itself. Knowing that a movie is a two-parter, I've now seen the build-up because it's the build-up movie. Now I need to see where it lands to kind of justify parts of the movie. I understand what you're saying. However, this is its own entity. I, I get what you're saying, and I think you'll be satisfied, but we're not there yet. We have to get through this movie, which by itself is already an emotional roller coaster, and I am ready to talk about it so overall with what you know now how did you feel about this movie i liked it i did i definitely liked it i feel like there are some slow sections of this movie that kind of is uh necessary at this point because we are wrapping the story up you want to build to these points naturally and sometimes with the other movies as we've said in the past they've gone so fast that we're like what the fuck is going on because how long is this book? This book is what, 800 pages? Oh, at least that, yeah. As I mentioned previously on our other Harry Potter episodes, I've been rereading the books along with our rewatches of the movies. I only reread the first half of Deathly Hallows, the book. I got up to page 643. Okay. So you're about. I'm basically two thirds of the way down with the book. Okay. So 900 pages is still a lot of pages. Yes. <laughs> uh, they had their time and they did take it. So there was no point where I felt like this movie was rushing through points. Though at the very beginning, there were a lot of new characters thrown at me. Yeah, well, that's the thing. There are a couple of characters that are introduced for exposition's sake, I guess, in the, in the movie, in the beginning. However, there are also a couple of characters that had popped up in previous books as like very minor characters, but were never mentioned in the movies, but they play a more important role towards the end in the last books, so they have to be brought up, so it kind of seems like they come out of nowhere. I think it is a good movie on its own. If the next one lands, which everyone seems to think it does... It does. It fucking does. <laughs> then that will keep this as a good rating, but if the next one happened to shit the bed that might knock this one down a half a peg or so at this point i would share my overall thoughts but i don't think you really need to hear me say how much i love harry potter i i've mentioned that before i really loved this movie i felt all of the feels i cried when i reread the first half of the book and i i got a little emotional towards the end of this movie <laughs> we'll talk about why when we get there i'm not ready 
So this was released in 2010, directed by David Yates once again, written by Steve Cloves once again, composed by Alexandre Desplat. He is a very famous composer. He has done the score for movies such as Benjamin Button, uh, Moonrise Kingdom, Grand Budapest Hotel, The Shape of Water, Midnight Sky, etc., etc. And he also did part one and two of The Deathly Hallows. I really liked the score for this particularly. It's, it's very subdued. It is, but then when shit gets real, it, it has the very epic feel to it as well but without being overpowering and and bombastic you know what i mean yeah it was nominated for two oscars ah one for visual effects however it lost to inception yeah understandably so and it was also nominated for art direction but it lost to (laughs) tim burton's alice in wonderland it's kooky, so it's good. <laughs> I'm sure Harry Potter would have loved to have been like, Deathly Hollows Part 1, Oscar winner. But I'm sure they sold just fine without it. That's true. I mean, just to ride that little elephant in the room, obviously naysayers of Hollywood and cinema in general were just like, oh, they, made, they split into two parts so they could make more money. And it's like, as a Harry Potter fan... No shit, Sherlock. Yeah, they did it to make money. But also, it worked out for the best, I think, for everyone. Because this franchise is so epic. If you tried to wrap everything up in one movie, it would have been a disaster. So, make your money, Queen. I'm cool with it. <laughs> well, if you had watched the previous movies, Half-Blood Prince, Goblet of Fire... Order of the Phoenix, a common theme we said while watching these, or at least I said, is they felt a little rushed. Yeah, I think Half-Blood Prince was the worst of those, but yes, overall, there were certain things in all three of those movies that were rushed because there's a lot of book and just a little bit of movie. So you don't want your high note, your lasting note, the thing that's going to be like, boom, here it is, this is the end, to be like, so much happened so quickly that I couldn't focus on anything. And by the way, j- you saying that just made me think of something else. That's why it pisses me off that Fantastic Beasts exist. <laughs> because you ended the fucking franchise so fucking well. <laughs> and then you have to ruin it <laughs> by bringing in this shit. <laughs> well, okay. The only thing I will defend about Fantastic Beast. <sighs> I'm not defending the idea of the story because the story... Sucks. Sucks. The world of Harry Potter and the wizarding world is a cool world. Yes. There's a reason everyone always goes, oh, would you rather live in Star Wars, live in Harry Potter, or live in Lord of the Rings? Because that's the question all nerds ask themselves. Right. I'm not saying you could have never made another Harry Potter world movie, but like, try. (laughs) That's all I ask. Just try. Um, dear, ready to get in the nitty gritty? <laughs> yes, let's get into the nitty and the gritty. Okay, so we have our kind of cold open to this movie. We go back and forth between different scenes. First, we see our new minister of magic. Fudge is out. Fuck that guy. We have now a man by the name of Rufus Scrimmager. I don't remember them ever saying his name in the oh, movie. They, they, I think they do. Maybe I just missed it. 
Uh, and he's played by a Brit named Bill Nye. Not Bill Nye the science guy. Another Bill Nye. He's our new minister of magic and he's giving a speech about how the ministry is strong and will protect its people. Spoiler alert, he's dead within the first 30 minutes. <laughs> then we cut to Hermione at home with her parents and she's packing up like she's getting ready to go somewhere. But where is she to go? She goes into the living room and casts a spell on them, Obliviate. And we see the effects of the spell essentially erasing her from her parents' life. So she can go off and her parents can be protected. And this is shown by pictures. She like disappears from pictures and stuff. And then we cut to Harry at the Dursleys. And he is watching as the Dursley family is packing up and leaving their home. Basically they're leaving so they can be protected from Voldemort. Because once Harry becomes of age, his magical protection ceases to exist. And if Voldemort were to find them, he would torture them to try to find Harry. So they're trying to just get the Dursleys out of Dodge. But what's funny is I remember there being a scene in the movie, but it wasn't in the movie. It was a deleted scene. I thought it was in the movie of Dudley and Harry kind of having a moment where they shake hands and say goodbye to each other and kind of make peace. Yeah, it was a deleted scene. And you could tell partially why they deleted it because... Dudley apparently had lost a ton of weight. Yeah, Harry Melling, the actor who plays Dudley, he, by that point, had lost a lot of weight. He wasn't uh, the, the pudgy little kid that he once was. So they kind of, it looks very obvious that they put a fat suit on him. I don't know why they would do this knowing that they have a fat suit on him, but they did a close-up on his face. And like, why would you do a close-up? It, it's so obviously a fat suit. <laughs> Like, stop, okay, whatever. That's um, why they cut the scene. <laughs> after all of that, we get our title card. We're ready to get into this thing. And we start off by seeing Alan Rickman as Severus Snape in the only fucking sequence that he's in in this movie. Severus Snape has a big part in Deathly Hallows, but basically all of his stuff is in part two. <laughs> he comes into this meeting of Death Eaters. Led by Voldemort, obviously. Yes, led by Voldemort, who makes a like sly remark that, oh, I thought you had gotten lost, Severus. Basically, like, questioning Snape's loyalty. Well, I mean, yeah, that's really been the thing throughout this whole series, is like, what side is he really on? They're actually at the Malfoy residence, and we know that because Lucius Malfoy is back. He has been broken out of Azkaban. And he is a little gun shy. <laughs> you can tell he's been through some shit. But they're having a, a meeting and they're talking about trying to get to Harry. Snape tells Voldemort, oh, he's being moved at this time. So our best chance is to get him while he's being transported. And Voldemort's like, sounds good. Here's the thing, though. My wand and Harry's wand are twins. They have the same core, so we can't kill each other with our two wands. So I need someone else's wand. Lucius, hand me your wand. And he's like, okay, yes, yes, master. <laughs> okay. Uh, I know Voldemort is a scary dude, but the way he's played here, it's just a scene. I don't know why. But it bugged me in this scene. We didn't feel scary in this scene. Like, I could tell everyone was scared of him, but I didn't feel it from Voldemort. 
Well, at this point, he's with his followers, so he really doesn't have to, like, ham up the scariness. He knows that he has them by the balls. I guess. It just it just felt weird to me. Like, this is supposed to be our big bad, and this is, like, our big scene with him. This is the biggest scene we get with him, basically. At least in this movie, yeah. No, I get what you're saying. The other thing we get from this scene, Voldemort says he's planning on infiltrating the Ministry, we look above the table that they're sitting at and there is a woman hovering over the table. Voldemort says, this woman was a muggle studies teacher at Hogwarts. She thinks that pure blood witches and wizards should give a shit about muggles. She thinks that we could mate with them. Oh, disgusting. It's very Hitler-esque. We get it, okay? Hitler is to Jewish people as... <laughs> Voldemort is to muggles. We got it. But Yeah, this this basically could have been Harry Potter and the Nazi parallel. Voldemort goes to kill her and she turns to Severus Snape and says, please, Severus, please, we're friends because they worked at Hogwarts together and Snape is fucking stone-faced. Everyone else is like scared shitless. But Snape is fucking stone face as Voldemort fucking kills this bitch. And then his snake, Nagini, which I think is the first time Nagini has like really showed up in the movies. I think she's like in a scene beforehand, but not like... As like a character. Uh, she goes and has a, a nice three-course meal of this lady. I was sitting there and I was going, okay... I would have liked if we had met this woman in the movies before, even if it was like a quick little thing. Did we meet her in the books? No. <laughs> nope. It's really, it's not about her. It's just about what she represents. Even still, it would have been nice with this opening kill to be like, holy shit. Yeah, I got you. I got you. Next, we cut back to Harry at the Dursley house. It's completely bare. He's packing up to leave. He goes downstairs and he visits his little cupboard under the stairs. Remember from the first movie? Remember the memories when you used to sleep in the room without fucking ventilation? You probably should have died in there. (laughs) Sleeping with the dust bunnies every night. In a short while, we get a, a slew of people coming to the house to help transport Harry to a safe place, the burrow. Uh, which has been rebuilt since it burned down in the last movie. Making that scene utterly pointless. Well, they're magical, Scott. Okay, they can rebuild their house. I'm sure it took a good five minutes of really hard spellcasting. But if you remember, as the house burns down, Molly Weasley stares at it, sad, looking on as her home burns to it's the ground. It's still sad. <laughs> it's just not sad anymore because they rebuilt the house. So Ron and Hermione come, obviously, and we also get Hagrid, we get Mad-Eye Moody, we get the Weasley twins, Fred and George, we get uh, Ramus Lupin and Tonks, who are married now, by the way. Oh, but we, no, we don't have time for that. We don't, we don't have time. Yeah, no, <laughs> we, we gloss over that real quick, but it's fine. Uh, we also get Flor Delacour, because she's currently engaged to Bill Weasley, who I think we're meeting for the first time. Uh, Yes, he was only previously mentioned in Goblet. He's played by Donald Gleason, who played General Hux in the more recent Star Wars trilogy. But fun fact, he's actually Brendan Gleason, who plays Mad-Eye Moody, his real-life son. 
Huh. And we also get this sketchy dude named Mundungus Fletcher. And he is roped into helping with this little mission by Moody. They make it pretty clear that he's a sketchy dude just by his demeanor and the fact that Moody doesn't really trust him 100%. (laughs) He's not really super important. Well, he kind of is, at least in this book. He's been mentioned in previous books as a very minor character, someone who has kind of been helping the Order, but again, is like pretty shifty and a thief, and we don't trust him 100% problem with not mentioning him before is that now that he shows up in this movie where he actually does shit that matters for the plot it's seemingly out of nowhere so now we get the famous seven harry scene so the plan is for six of these people in this group here to take polyjuice potion and disguise themselves as harry and every harry gets a little buddy They're each going to fly off into the distance. That way, if there's anybody after them, they won't know which Harry's the real Harry. It's a little goofy. It is goofy, but I I like this scene because it's so weird. You see Daniel Radcliffe dressed up as each of these people, and he has to basically act like each of these characters. It's cute. Like, at one point, he's wearing a bra, and he's like, oh, don't look at me. I'm hideous. It's like... (laughs) It's funny to me. But um, all the Harrys pair up with their respective buddies. And the real Harry is going with Hagrid, which I think is notable because they mentioned in the movie that Hagrid brought him to the Dursley house when he was a little baby on his motorcycle. And now he's the one taking him out of the house. We, we, we don't have time for that. We must move. It's we must emotional move. and nice. We must move. It, we, we must be like Brendan Gleeson and move on. Every time something even marginally emotional is said, Mad-Eye Moody just comes and like, we got shit to do. <laughs> so they all take off into the sky and immediately the Death Eaters are on them like white on rice and a fight ensues. We really just stay with Hagrid and Harry, the real Harry, during this flight. But two notable things happen. One is that in the melee, spells are flying back and forth and someone very important gets hit. And it really, it happens so quick. It's like snap and it's done. Hedwig, the snowy owl, pet and friend of Harry Potter, is deceased. It's done so quick that it makes it very clear to the audience that no one is fucking safe and anyone in this movie could go in the blink of an eye and it's over. Yeah, I like that, they, personally. They killed the animal. They had to kill poor Hedwig. And also, I feel like she's kind of a symbol of Harry Potter's youth and like when he first started off in Hogwarts and in the magical world because she was really one of the first magical presents that he really had. Well, yeah, literally Hagrid bought it. Yeah. The fact that she died, especially like so early on in the movie, also kind of says to the audience like, this is not whimsical troll in the dungeon this is not those times anymore shit is getting real here okay (laughs) the other notable thing that happens in this chase scene is that voldemort does show up to try to get harry 
Harry's like almost in and out of consciousness and his wand when Voldemort gets close his wand acts on its own and moves to defend itself against Voldemort's spell ah do you didn't see that uh, I didn't realize it moved on its own I thought Harry was just kind of like almost like pure instinct yeah well that's in the book that's how Hermione describes it because once they're at the burrow uh, uh, Harry brings up that this happened he's like I didn't do that like it just did it on its own like what the fuck and Hermione's like no no it was just instinct Harry like you know you maybe felt like it acted on its own but you were just doing it out of instinct and he's like no that's not what happened Harry and Hagrid managed to get to the burrow and they are quickly followed by some of the others we first get Lupin and George Weasley George Weasley is badly hurt, we see immediately. We don't know exactly what happened, but he's badly hurt. And Lupin grabs Harry, throws him against the wall, and is like, who the fuck are you? And he asks him like a question about so- something only they would know about each other, just to see if he's an imposter. Because he's like, we have been betrayed. Someone knew you were being moved tonight. Some of the others start showing up and... Lupin asks more questions. Yeah, Kingsley is there. Ron and Hermione show up and they share a very awkward, flirty type, romantically charged hug. <laughs> That's the thing too. Like the the romantic thing between Ron and Hermione is very present in this movie. There's lots of flirting, lots of awkwardness, but I'm here for it. I love it. Yeah, we cut back inside to realize that George has lost an ear. One of my favorite wrestlers of all time, Mick Foley, Lost part of his left ear in an accident. And it kind of made me think of that. Ow. Yeah, it was fucking crazy. Ow, ow. I was surprised we didn't ask the question, why can't they just magic it back? Well, yeah, why can't they just magic it back? They actually mentioned that in the book. Because it was blown off with a spell, magically, they can't put it back. Because magic, that's their explanation. So back in book two... Mm Mm-hmm. When Lockhart randomly magics Harry's bones away, mm-hmm. they should not be able to then grow the bones back if that's the case. Well, dear, you know, <laughs> that's a statement you just made. Anyway, <laughs> don't think about the plot holes. Just worry about the hole in George's head, dear. He has no ear. But after mostly everyone comes back, Bill informs us that Mad-Eye Moody is dead and Mundungus Fletcher has fled the scene. Okay, this upset me a little bit. Mad-Eye Moody has been a relevant character for now three movies. You know, he's been important. And you kill him off screen? I mean, to be fair, they don't make a big deal about it in the book really either. But even if you had a moment, like, even if it's quickly in the background where he's flying and suddenly gets hit and he falls off the broom. Yeah, they could have very easily did that. Like, he's the, he was been an important character. Yeah, I get what you're saying. But again, it does kind of send the message, like, no one's safe. Well, Frankie, we got more important things to talk about. There's a wedding that needs to go on. Yes, now that everyone is home, safe and sound, it is time to prepare for the wedding of Bill and Floor. We get a little funny kiss scene with Harry and Ginny here. 
he like zips up her dress and they're sharing like a cute moment and george with his fucking bandage on his ear walks in (laughs) (laughs) he's like hello (laughs) and then they just awkwardly walk away in separate directions as george sits there and sips tea so before the big wedding we get a visit from the minister of magic (gasps) he shows up to bequeath certain items from dumbledore's will to harry ron and hermione firstly ron receives Dumbledore's Deluminator, which if you remember from the very first movie, it's the little doohickey that Dumbledore uses to suck out all the lights from the street. Next, Hermione gets a children's book called Tales of Beetle and the Bard. That Ron was very excited about. He's like, oh, my mom used to read that to me all the time. And then Harry and Hermione look at him like, like, what are you talking about? We were raised by muggles, you idiot. We don't know what you're saying. <laughs> we don't know your magical children's books. And Harry receives the snitch that he caught in his first year at Hogwarts. And in Dumbledore's will, all these little gifts are given like schmaltzy explanations for why they're given to the kids. But in reality, the trio believes this is all about the mission that they're supposed to go on together to find these horcruxes. Like at one point, Hermione mentions like maybe Dumbledore hid something in the snitch because snitches have flesh memories, so it will only react to your touch. Why does that sound like a horror movie thing? Flesh memories. Flesh memories. But there is one more gift, but it can't be given because it is lost. Yes, Dumbledore bequeaths Harry with the Gryffindor sword, which Scrimmager explains, well, it's an ar- a magical artifact. It wasn't Dumbledore's to give away, but even if it was, we don't have it. It's lost. And uh, Scrimmager just has one more line, really. He's like, you can't fight this war on your own, Potter. He's too strong. And then that's the end of the scene, which is kind of a bummer because in the book, Harry and Scrimmager have more of a contentious relationship. Scrimmager is on Harry's ass to, like, tell him about Dumbledore's mission for him and, like, let him in on what's going on. And Harry's like, I don't fucking trust you. You ministry people are fucking idiots. Screw off. But they kind of cut out that more contentious side of their relationship, which is kind of a bummer because literally in the next 10 minutes, the guy's fucking dead. So it doesn't matter anyway. (laughs) Well, exactly. He's going to die in the next 10 minutes. So what the fuck does it matter? So we, we get the wedding celebrations. We see Luna Lovegood at the wedding, and we meet her father, Xenophilius Lovegood, played by Reese Ifans, who Scott didn't even recognize. No, the, the long hair threw me off. Uh, uh, but he, he was in one of our previous episodes of Shoot the Flick when we talked about the replacements. He was. So at the wedding, Harry talks to this old man who was an old friend of Dumbledore's, basically just talking to him about Dumbledore and his life and Harry starts to realize that he really didn't know that much about Dumbledore even though they had this close bond or whatever throughout all these years the guy mentions that he had a brother Harry didn't even know he had a brother at all and also that he grew up in Godric's Hollow which is the place where Harry was born and where his parents unfortunately met their very early demise Oh, and also, one more important little tidbit. The guy mentions someone by the name of Bethilda Bagshot, who grew up with Dumbledore in Godric's Hollow. But uh, it seems like a innocuous detail, but it's a little bit important for something that happens later. Okay, just planting the seeds. As the celebrations are afoot, 
a warning comes in the form of a Patronus. A voice comes from the Patronus saying, the ministry has fallen and the minister, Rufus Scrimmager, is dead. And the last thing that the voice says is, they're coming. And within like a second, Death Eaters storm the fucking wedding. Lupin pushes Harry away and he's like, get the fuck out of here, go. (laughs) And he disapparates with Hermione and Ron. And they end up in this hole in the wall cafe in London, I think, chatting about what they're going to do next. And pretty immediately, some Death Eaters show up and they have a fucking battle in the middle of this cafe <laughs> they try and throw little small elements of comedy that sometimes work and sometimes don't here they have the waitress who can't hear the sound from behind the swinging door as spells are flying and destroying shit in the fucking cafe it doesn't work here but after the cafe they go to Sirius's old house which now is technically harry's house We get Harry having some good old-fashioned Voldemort dreams where he's, like, seeing through his eyes. Throughout the movie, we get multiple nightmare sequences. We see Voldemort torturing Ollivander, who is the infamous wand maker from the very first movie. Yes. He was actually kidnapped in the last movie. I don't think we mentioned it because it was so quick, but he was kidnapped in the last movie and there was a big question hanging over like, why did they kidnap Ollivander of all people? But throughout the movie, we get these different nightmare sequences and Harry learns that Voldemort is looking for something. We learn later on that it's something of Dumbledore's. So we learn little pieces throughout the movie And it's all leading up to the very end where two plus two equals four. So once they're in Sirius Black's house, they see a door to a bedroom. And on the door, it says R-A-B. And they're like, R-A-B? Hey, that's the fucking initials to the person that stole the fucking real locket horcrux from the last movie they're like hmm convenience what's that about and they're like oh it's regulus black who was sirius's brother who is long dead it's kind of like the sifo-dyas thing in star wars where it's like oh let's bring up this dead character that you'll never meet and never see and never hear anything about and he's very important to this one part of the movie (laughs) yeah yeah So basically, he was the guy who stole the Horcrux, but he couldn't destroy it. He tried to get his house elf, Creature, to destroy it. And Creature tells our trio, when they ask what happened to the locket, the real locket, Creature says that, unfortunately, someone had come into the house and cleaned it out and stole all of the goodies in the house, all the expensive goodies. Mundungus Fletcher. Ah, that son of a bitch. Sketchy thief guy from earlier. So they basically tell Creature to go get him. Yeah, he does. He brings him back pretty soon after. With Dobby. Yes, with Dobby's help. We're so happy to see Dobby again. For some reason, Dobby looks less wrinkly. Both of the elves, Creature and Dobby, look visually better than they did in previous movies. I think just because the visual effects have improved over however many years but we learn from mundungus fletcher that he was trying to sell things in diagon alley and was confronted by someone someone from the ministry 
who said, hey, I'm going to bring you in and arrest you unless you give me that pretty locket there. And who is this lovely, lovely person, Scott? Dolores Umbridge. Oh. I am woman. Hear me smash! <laughs> That's right, Imelda Staunton is back in this movie. Guys, the fucking Wicked Witch of the West is back. <laughs> yeah, and she is just as unpleasant. So now we go into our Ocean's Eleven heist movie. Oh, yeah. Harry, Ron, and Hermione knock out three random people, steal their DNA, and use Polyjuice Potion to turn into them. They break into the Ministry, where... <laughs> Things immediately start to go wrong. Yeah, uh, the guy that Ron is impersonating, we find out that his wife, who's a muggle-born witch, is being tried for being basically a thief of magic. That's basically what's been happening now that the Death Eaters and Voldemort have taken over the ministry. Every muggle-born witch and wizard is being fucked with and told that they're not real witches and wizards. It's basically, you know, Hitler, hello. Ron always has the best line of most of the movies. This line where he is the guy and they're in the elevator after he just found out this guy's wife is going to be tried. He goes, oh my God, my wife's all alone. <laughs> what do I do? And Ron, Harry just looks at him like, Ron, you don't have a wife, you idiot. <laughs> but then um, Harry ends up going downstairs to the courtroom where, of course, Dolores Umbridge is the judge and jury talking to Ron's quote-unquote wife and basically accusing her of being a liar and a thief of magic and all these horrible things. But Harry is just so fucking pissed off. He goes up to her and he's like, you're a liar, Dolores, and you must not tell lies. <laughs> and then he's... Call back. He fucking whacks her with the fucking spell, steals the locket, and the trio supreme barely fucking escape the ministry with the locket also with ron's wife in tow they don't take the wife with them out of the ministry but ron's just like oh go get the kids get out of here mary it's gonna be fine and she kisses him and then he's like bye yeah he turns back into ron yeah she's like horrified like ew i just kissed a 17 year old little boy catfishing has to be terrible in the wizarding universe oh yeah yeah but the, i i don't <laughs> know though because when you use the polyjuice potion you still have your voice so i would imagine you would know your husband's voice it's just weird maybe but anyway maybe because it's such a stressful situation she's yeah not let's thinking just blame the it. stress it's very stressful <laughs> <laughs> it's very stressful almost being persecuted for no reason i will give you that but unfortunately, when they escape the ministry, Ron ends up getting splinched, which means that a chunk of him got taken out of his arm. Oh, was, okay. I thought he got cut. They, yeah, they didn't really show it in the movie. They just showed him bleeding. But in the book, a big chunk of his arm is gone. But Hermione quickly fixes it with a little magical juju, and they end up setting up camp. Hermione is always prepared. She brought a fucking huge tent with her in this fucking Mary Poppins bag. They set up protective spells around them to make them invisible. They immediately start trying to destroy the locket with their wands and various spells and it does nothing. No, it is a futile effort. But we also get here the start of our trio wearing the locket. 
because they want to keep it close to them so they don't lose it or get it stolen or anything. But because they're wearing it, the evil surrounding the whole crux starts affecting their mood. Yes. Harry's being very short with everybody, very nasty. And Hermione's like, take that fucking thing off now, will you? And the second he takes it off, he feels better. And Hermione's like, all right, we'll take it in shifts. We'll each wear it for a little while that way none of us are wearing it for too long yeah they totally aped this off lord of the rings with uh the one ring of power how it affects frodo throughout that series this whole sequence coming up it's just a bunch of our trio moving around trying to stay on the move not one place for too long until they can figure out what to do next because right now they're kind of lost they have this horcrux but they don't know how to destroy it they don't know where any of the other horcruxes are they're just kind of biding their time till they can figure out something and you get in this sequence a good sense of the frustration that they're all feeling but especially ron we get a little bit of jealousy from Ron as well. <sighs> Again. Jesus fucking Christ with these fucking two. Ron. Yeah, Scott was not happy about this. Because <laughs> we've done this already. We're retracing steps. If you have it where Ron is frustrated about the horror cruxes and being involved in this, that's fine. We don't have to do the, oh, Harry and Hermione are friends, but maybe they're more than friends. So fuck them. And I'm not going to fucking deal with this shit. And I'm going to fucking leave. And you can go fuck yourself, Harry. And Yeah, well, it all leads up to this big argument scene, mainly between Ron and Harry. Hermione has this aha moment where she kind of realizes, oh, Dumbledore left you the Gryffindor sword. Maybe that's what can destroy the Horcruxes. And then Harry kind of joins in and they're having this... Intellectual powwow. Yes, exactly. And Ron gets jealous and uses the the deluminator to turn out the lights and he's like oh yeah i'm still here harry's like what the fuck's your problem and ron voices his understandable frustration that we're not fucking accomplishing anything here like we're fucking flying by the seat of our pants and ron says the penultimate fight ending thing you think i don't know how this feels no, you don't know how it feels your parents are dead you have no family <laughs> Then they go at it and Hermione breaks them up. Hermione actually tries to get Ron to take the locket off. She's like, you wouldn't be acting like this if you hadn't been wearing that thing all day. Ron does take the locket off, but he takes it off because he's going to get the fuck out of here and he's leaving. And he looks at Hermione. He's like, you come with me or you stay in here with him. And she's like, I I'm going to stay. I we we have a mission. <laughs> like, hello. And Ron's like, oh, fine. And he leaves. Hermione calls out to him and she's crying and it's sad. Like, Don't deseparate angry people. Don't yeah, deseparate you're not, you when you're You shouldn't deseparate in anger. That's the age old adage. I know throughout the earlier movies we've talked a lot of shit about Ron just because he's Ron. But like I genuinely felt bad for him here. Yeah, you feel bad. But again, this whole relationship bullshit. We've treaded this path. We've treaded it here. Like, come on. They're all exhausted. They've been through a lot of bullshit. And, you know, if you do think about it, Ron has a different experience with this whole being on the run thing than the other two. Because Hermione, while it's sad that she erased her parents' memory and sent them off to, like, Australia or something, she knows that they're okay. And Harry, 
you know, he's obviously worried about the Weasleys too and all his other friends and everything. But Ron has all of this family and he's he's not used to being without family. Harry's kind of used to it. Well, you know, I'm sorry that Molly and Arthur fuck like rabbits. I apologize for that. You I know? mean, it's, yeah, I, I get what you're saying, <laughs> but you know... <laughs> And also, Ron has this complex going for the past fucking seven years of being second banana. So he's kind of susceptible to feeling jealousy to Harry. But we do find out later that the second Ron left, he wanted to come back and he felt bad. Which also makes sense because Ron's a good guy. He just got a little butt hurt. That's all. So they keep going up along their journey. Yeah, just uh, Harry and Hermione. Harry decides that he wants to go to Godric's Hollow because his parents are buried there and Dumbledore grew up there, he found out earlier. So he's like, maybe if Dumbledore had the Gryffindor sword, maybe he left it for me there. So they go to Godric's Hollow. And we get our Bruce Wayne moment. Yes. They have Harry and Hermione visiting Harry's parents' graves. And then they notice that this little old lady is watching them and they're like a little suspicious but harry's like hmm i think i know who that is i think that's bathilda bagshot the old lady that lives in godrick's hollow that grew up with dumbledore that was mentioned early in the movie which okay i get that you think that and it's right kind of we'll get to it but you just see a little old lady in the distance and you assume that it's this one person that grew up like it's just we're reaching yeah because what if you had gone up to her and you're like hey are you miss bagshot which by the way dumb name all these names pretty much are dumb let's get over that continue but are you miss bagshot she goes no i'm agnes yeah Yeah, you're done I don't know. But anyway, they follow this little old lady to her freaking house. And of course, we find out it's a trap. The real Bathilda backshot is deader than a doornail. And this Bathilda backshot is actually Nagini the snake. And Harry hits her with a fucking brick. That's how you do it. And him and Hermione have yet another narrow escape from death. Yeah, Harry gets thrown through a wall here at some point. It was crazy. Yeah, and his wand breaks, which is a whole other thing that happens. It's not so good. No. They go back to the forest, and they set up camp again, their protective spells and whatnot. And Harry is playing lookout, basically, while Hermione's asleep inside the tent. And he has Hermione's wand, and he has the locket around his neck. And in the darkness... In the twilight. He's sitting there, all by his lonesome, and he sees... A little light in the distance. Whatever could it be? Fairies? No, it is a doe patronus. A doe, a deer, a female Female deer. deer. Ray, a drop of golden sun. Me, a name I call myself. Far, a long, long way to run. And he ends up following this random patronus to a nearby river. And he looks into the river as the Patronus goes on its merry way, and he sees a sword at the bottom of the river. (gasps) Could it be? It's the Gryffindor sword. How the fuck did that happen? (laughs) We'll find out in the next movie. So uh, Harry has to go into the river to get this fucking sword because he can't get it out with the wand. Yeah, he can't do uh, his little trick he learned before where he's like, Akuna. Akuna Matata. (laughs) 
It's Accio. Uh, whatever. Accio. Akuna sword. So he's got to go dive into the ice. But when he gets down there, he can't get to the sword because the locket decides it's going to be a dickhead and just strangle fucking Harry in the water. <laughs> and he's trying to get back up to the surface and he's stuck under the ice. I was one. Okay. I, I didn't get that. I didn't understand that the locket was like choking him. I, I thought there was like something protecting the sword. No, I think it's just because the, the locket was trying to get away from the sword because it recognized that that's the only thing that can actually kill it. So it was trying to get away from the sword. Ah, I see, I see, I see. So Harry is about to fucking drown in this icy water, but then all of a sudden, like a beacon of hope, Ron appears. Yay! And Ron saves Harry's life and grabs the sword. Harry tells Ron, I think it has to be you. you. You got the sword. I think you should do it. I think you should kill the Horcrux. So Harry opens the locket and he warns Ron. He's like, listen, when I was trying to kill the diary back in Chamber of Secrets, the diary tried to fight back against me killing it. So just be prepared for that. And sure enough, when Harry opens the locket, it tries to fuck with Ron's head, basically, as Ron goes to stab it. Yeah, with projections of Harry and Hermione. Nakey. Nakey telling Ron, <laughs> oh, Harry's so much better than you. He's got such a bigger dick. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's sexy. <laughs> you know, that that pale, bespectacled face of his. It's so gorgeous. He's the chosen one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then we get a weird naked makeout scene between Harry and Hermione, which I guess if you're looking at it objectively, it's not that bad. But like as a Harry Potter fan, it was just kind of weird because forget the fact that Harry and Hermione up to this point, I think, have had no chemistry. I wouldn't say they have no chemistry. Well, they do. Okay. In this movie, during the time that Harry and Hermione are on their own, they have this little dancing scene where they're just sitting in the tent, the two of them, and they're kind of like feeling a little defeated or whatever. And Harry goes over to Hermione and starts dancing with her. And it's a cute moment. But then at the end, Harry and Hermione are looking at each other and it's like, oh, will they or won't they? Are they going to kiss? Like, what's happening? And that's not in the book at all. It's literally just put in the movie to build up the tension and build up a love triangle that doesn't really exist. But never mind that, okay, this manufactured love triangle between our trio supreme. It's also a little weird when you think about the fact that you've been watching these kids together since they were like 11 years old. And now they're just naked and making out with each other. (laughs) And granted, it's not real. It's just a projection. But still, they're like going at it. But Ron has his big boy moment where he puts his big boy pants on and he gets the fuck over it and he stabs the shit out of this locket and destroys it. But it annoyed me also because they purposely took something out of this moment that was in the book and they took it out for the movie to still build up this triangle tension bullshit. In the book, after Ron stabs the fucking locket, 
Harry goes over to him because obviously Harry also saw this weird projection of himself making out with Hermione and he says to Ron she's like my sister I thought you knew that like there's nothing going on with us but of course they leave that out of the movie because we got to build up this tension this romantic tension that's like come on just let Ron have this one thing (laughs) he's competed with Harry unsuccessfully pretty much throughout the entire goddamn series let him have the one thing let him have the hot girl (laughs) well he already has wizard chess so you know giving him the hot girl is you know yeah hermione's a fucking super genius harry's the fucking chosen one and ron can just you know play chess (laughs) but he does have a little moment to shine this is ron's best moment in the movie i would argue his best moment in the entire series ron and harry go back to camp to see hermione and hermione has her fucking funny moment where she's like you fucking idiot ron how could you leave us and she goes to harry at one point she's like where's my wand harry and he's like what no nothing i don't know i'm not giving you the wand right now this is a bad idea (laughs) like they're all fucking scared of hermione when she's pissed But Ron proceeds to tell a story about how he found Harry and Hermione because Harry thinks about it for a second. He's like, oh, yeah, how did you even find us? And he tells them this beautiful story. Christmas morning, I was sleeping in this little pub and I heard it. It? A voice. Your voice, Hermione. This tiny ball of light appeared. It floated toward me. Right to my chest, straight through me, right here. This little ball of light came out as an illuminator, and I knew I would follow it where I needed to go. And the little ball of light pierced through my heart, and it sent me to you. And Hermione was like, dead silent. Yeah, it's a good moment. It's a good little speech by Ron here. At one point after this, Ron goes to Harry and he's like, how long do you think she's going to be mad at me? And Harry goes, oh, just keep talking about that little ball of light that pierced through your heart and that'll get her going. Don't worry. (laughs) At this point, Hermione comes in and she's like, I have an idea of where we should go next. Now, up to this point, there has been this little symbol that has shown up. If you're a Harry Potter fan, you know what the symbol is. It's the Deathly Hallows symbol. This little symbol has been cropping up here and there and everywhere. It was inside the children's book that Hermione was gifted to by Dumbledore. It was on a tombstone from one of the old graves at the cemetery where Harry's parents were buried. And Luna's father at the wedding was wearing a necklace of this symbol around his neck. So Hermione has the idea. She doesn't know what the symbol is, but she's like, we should go see luna's dad and ask him about this symbol and what it means i feel like it 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 has something to do with this because dumbledore gave me this book with this inscription in it like i feel like it means something so we got to find out so they go to visit reese iphons and he's looking quite disheveled they ask where luna is because it's christmas break at this point so she should be home and he's like oh she's she's out and about she'll be along Yeah, and the kids are like, okay, whatever. But they ask what the symbol means, and he proceeds to tell them that it's the symbol of the Deathly Hallows. Hermione brings up this children's book that Dumbledore left her, and he's like, oh, it's, yeah, it's one of, it's connected to one of the stories in there. 
why don't you read it, Hermione? And we proceed to get Hermione giving us this old wizard's children's tale. And we get a nice little animated segment going along with it, which was really cool, I thought. Yeah, it's, it's fine. It's a nice change of pace. I remember the first time I saw this movie, it felt kind of weird because up to this point, like there's never been any animated anything in the movies, but it was still like a cool sequence. It was well done. Yeah, it, it's a good segment. It's basically about three brothers. Yeah, it's a little fable. Who all get wishes from death. So the Cliff Notes version of this tale is there are three brothers and they come up on this like really dangerous river or whatever and they magically build a bridge to get over it and they are greeted by death who is pissed off because they're like oh this these waters are so dangerous so many people have drowned and you saved yourself from death this is bullshit and i want your souls death decides to play the long game and is like i'm so impressed by your magical skills i'm going to give you each a gift the oldest brother who's very arrogant wants a wand that is unbeatable So death gives him a wand that is called the Elder Wand, the most powerful wand ever made. And then the middle brother is like, I want something that can resurrect the dead. So death gives him a stone called the Resurrection Stone. And then the third brother, the youngest brother, I want a way to hide from death. And he gifts him with an invisibility cloak. Hmm. Ding, 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 ding. At this point, Scott was like, oh, invisibility cloak. Hmm, Interesting. Like Harry's invisibility cloak. And yes, the implication is that this cloak in this tale is Harry's invisibility cloak. They really kind of hammer it home in the book by saying like, oh, I've always wondered about that because Harry's invisibility cloak has never lost its power. It's never faded over time like other invisibility cloaks. But anyway, the tale ends with the two older brothers basically being hoisted on their own petards. The older brother, someone stole the elder wand from him. And then slid his throat. Right. And then the middle brother used the resurrection stone to bring back an old lover. But she was miserable because she didn't belong in the living world. So she wanted to die again and he killed himself to join her. And then the youngest brother evaded death his whole life until he got to a ripe old age and then greeted death like an old friend and then off they went together into the sunset so that's how the tale ends and mr lovegood basically says that the symbol which is a line down the middle signifying the elder wand a circle signifying the resurrection stone and then a triangle encasing both of those shapes meaning the cloak and that's the symbol for the deathly hallows which is all these three objects and the symbol is basically a calling card for people that think that those objects are real that the story is based on real life and that whoever has all three of these objects is the master of death the way he draws it because he draws the line in the circle first he draws a penis Oh my god, you're such a little boy, I can't. <laughs> he draws a penis. You would think anything is a penis. I don't think anything's a penis. It's a stick with a circle, it's a penis. It was definitely a penis. Okay. Have my back, audience. Okay, yeah, no one's gonna have your back on that, bro, sorry. But this is around the point where Harry kind of puts two and two together about his dreams, his Voldemort dreams, because he realizes, like, oh... 
Voldemort has been looking for something, A, that's about a wand. He needs another wand to combat Harry. And it has something to do with Dumbledore. So he kind of puts two and two together that Dumbledore had the Elder Wand. We don't really have time to ruminate on that because we realize very quickly that Luna isn't here. And they're like, where is Luna? And the dad is like, they took her because he's editor of this wizarding magazine, which has been defending Harry Potter vehemently throughout these past few months. And the Death Eaters, in order to fuck with Mr. Lovegood, kidnapped his daughter and is holding her hostage. And Mr. Lovegood decides, hey, if I give them Harry Potter, they'll give me my daughter back. So it's a trap. right as Mr. Lovegood says that, the Death Eaters come barging into the house. And once again, our trio supreme narrowly gets away with their lives. But not for long. Yes, they, of course, go back to the forest because when in doubt, just zap yourselves to the forest. But before they can pull up any protective charms over themselves, a bunch of bounty hunters appear and we get a pretty intense chase scene on foot with all of these people just throwing random charms at each other, trying to evade and run away. Yeah, Ron gets captured first. Of course. Why you gotta do Ron like that, man? He's always gotta be the fucking because his, slug. Well, because as Ron said in, earlier in the movie, he wouldn't last two minutes without Hermione. That's true. They do get captured, our trio supreme. Hermione does a little smart move here turns to harry and uses her wand to like fuck up his face to try and make it unrecognizable so the bounty hunters don't realize it's harry potter but they're still kind of suspicious i think because they see his scar it's like stretched out but it's still a scar on your forehead so they're like hmm is this harry potter hmm i don't know let's take them to the malfoy house because that's the death eater hq right now we get lucius malfoy pushing Draco in front of Harry like you know Harry Potter you have went to school with him for years you'll be able to ID him and I like this moment I wish there was more of Draco in this movie just in general because I feel like in the last movie he got a chance to shine and he did really well he kneels down in front of Harry and you can tell that he recognizes him but he hesitates to say that it's Harry he's like uh, I, I don't know what what happened to his face like he doesn't outright say that it's harry which goes to show that clearly he is still struggling with all this i just wish that there was more to it in this movie yeah we see bellatrix lestrange here at the hq and she is infuriated when she sees that our trio had the sword of gryffindor and she grabs Hermione. She's like, I'm going to torture this mudblood. <laughs> and they throw Ron and Harry into the dungeon downstairs where we also find that Luna is down there along with Ollivander. Yes. And a goblin. Yeah, from Gringotts. Yes. They're all locked up down there while Hermione is being fucking tortured upstairs. Like she's screaming her head off. Bellatrix keeps asking her how they got into her vault at Gringotts, implying that she thought that the Sword of Gryffindor was in her vault. Yeah. So that sets something up for the next movie. We'll get there. Don't you worry, kids. Yeah, she goes and grabs the goblin. Well, actually, she sends Wormtail 
to go grab the goblin. Oh, uh, yes. Remember Wormtail? By the way, he's supposed to die in this movie because we never see him again after this point, but they don't actually have a death scene for him. He is supposed to die in this movie, though. I, I understand Bellatrix is like much more of an intimidating villain because... Wormtail is like, eh, like I'm the bootlicker from Voldemort. Right. But this guy was directly responsible for Harry's parents' death. Right. And for him to kind of be relegated to the sidelines. It's kind of a bummer that they didn't do the death scene because the death scene is pretty cool. You remember when Voldemort came back in Goblet of Fire? They gave yeah, him, him the silver hand, yes. Wormtail. So... Wormtail goes down into the dungeon and Ron and Harry attack him. They tackle him to the ground and Wormtail ends up getting the drop on Harry and is on top of him, strangling him with the silver hand. And Harry says to Wormtail, I saved your life. You owe me, motherfucker. (laughs) Wormtail has a moment of regret and hesitation and he loosens his slack on Harry. And I guess the magical hand, because it was created by Voldemort the magical hand is evil so the magical hand gets a little mad at Wormtail and turns on him and starts strangling him so basically Wormtail looks like he's strangling himself and Harry and Ron actually try to save him but they can't because it's too powerful the hand so he just dies but he dies because he had a moment of remorse and didn't want to kill Harry so it's kind of like a callback to Prisoner of Azkaban, yeah. in a way. It could have been interesting. I think that would have been hard to translate well. I I agree, but it's I do also agree with you that he should have had some kind of moment where he gets his comeuppance. But our Deus Ex Dobby shows up. Yes. Okay. So so here's here's what happens. Here's another kind of weird moment. I have to provide some backstory before I explain this part. In Order of the Phoenix. Yes. When Harry is with Sirius Black right before he's about to go back to school. The last time that Harry sees Sirius alive. Sirius gives Harry a magical mirror. Sirius has one piece of it. Harry is given the other piece. And Sirius tells Harry, if you need me, use this mirror and I'll, I'll be there. After Sirius dies, Harry just kind of throws the mirror away in his trunk and just forgets about it. So it's not really brought up at all until this movie. But Harry, in the beginning of Deathly Hallows Part 1, he looks in it at one point and he thinks he sees a pair of eyes in the mirror. And it happens really quick. It's like a second. But he keeps it with him. So he, in the dungeon... He has it with him and in this moment of panic because Hermione's up there being tortured. They have no way out. They don't know what to do. He pulls out the mirror and he looks in it again and he sees eyes in there and he's like, help us, please help us. And then within a second or two, Dobby pops up. Like he apparates into the room and Harry's like, wait, can you apparate in and out of this room, Dobby? And Dobby's like, yes, of course. I'm an elf. (laughs) As if no shit, Sherlock. Of course I can. So Harry says to him, take Luna and Ollivander out of here. And Ron goes, take them to my brother's place, Bill and Floor's new place. It's by the beach. It's a beautiful spot. (laughs) It's beautiful. It's safe. Don't worry about it. Just take them there. And Dobby's like, okay. He takes Luna. He takes Ollivander. 
and he's like meet me upstairs in 10 seconds and he goes and harry and ron are there Wormtail comes down the stairs they knock out Wormtail. he's gone the rest of the movie we don't see him ever again i don't think in the rest of the series ron and harry sneak upstairs hermione is passed out with mud blood seared into her arm which i thought was a good touch they save hermione they grab her they grab the goblin and dobby of course saves the day dropping a chandelier like the phantom of the goddamn opera yeah he's he's the fucking mvp of this goddamn movie for sure he has literally the best line ever in the fucking series i think this was a good line i have to admit i know what line's coming this I, is... I love this line so much it makes me laugh all the time i reference it quite often in my everyday life after Dobby drops the chandelier, almost hitting Bellatrix, she goes, How dare you? You could have killed me! <laughs> and Dobby goes, Dobby never meant to kill. Dobby only meant to maim or seriously injure. Dobby's a free elf. Bitch. <laughs> Motherfucker. And then he grabs everyone and disapparates. But as they're disapparating, Bellatrix throws her knife and the knife gets sucked in with them. As they pop up onto Bill and Floor's lovely beachfront property, they look over at Dobby and he's got a knife sticking in his gut. And it's like, oh, it hurts. It hurts. Too many feels. Now, this is a non-magical death. So why can't they heal Dobby? Because it's a dark evil knife. Ooh. <laughs> I don't know, Scott. He's dead, okay? Just let him be dead. Let him rest in peace, damn it. <laughs> but then we lose our Dobby as Machina. I do love Dobby so much, and it's just so sad. It, it feels like they brought him back in the movies just to kill him. I mean, he was in the other books. He did pop up. Did he pop up when Hermione was trying to free all the elves of Hogwarts? Yes. That is also a subplot that was totally left out of the, the movies, but... Dobby has a, a terribly sad death scene. He dies in Harry's arms. And it's made even more sad because at the end of Chamber of Secrets, I don't know if you remember this, Scott, but Harry says to Dobby, promise me you'll never try to save my life again. And he died saving Harry's life. <laughs> this is the point when I was rereading the book that I was crying. <laughs> and I was reading it in a public place and it was really embarrassed. I was trying to keep it together. <laughs> And also, it's notable to mention that Dobby's first lines in the Harry Potter franchise were Harry Potter. And his last lines in the franchise is he's lying in Harry's arms. Harry Potter. And then he just dies. And it's so fucking sad. <laughs> but it's just yet again, in case you didn't get the fucking message, guys, no one is safe. <laughs> And we end with our trio supreme on a very somber note after burying Dobby and hiding out at Bill and Flora's place by the beach. However, we cut to our last scene of the movie, which is a little more nefarious, a little more dark, a little more foreboding. Very Infinity War-esque. Empire. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Voldemort breaks into Dumbledore's tomb and as he's staring down at Dumbledore, gently pulls the Elder Wand from his hand. <laughs> and that's where we end part one of Deathly Hallows. So how how did you feel about the ending, Scott? Do you feel like it ended on a good place? 
yes, it, it did definitely end on a good place. Dobby's death is really an impactful moment, but it does leave you wanting more as Voldemort has this elder wand. So now you're like, hmm, Harry's got one, Voldemort's got one. Now where's the fucking stone? We, we've destroyed some Horcruxes, but where are the other Horcruxes? What's going on with that? I, I do like this because it leaves so many questions up in the air. So you really have no choice but to just want more and to know what's going to happen. But you also, you do, I feel, get a completed story with this first half of this journey. When you do a, a sequel and you have to amp up stuff and you have to have something that's going to close this out like Deathly Hallows Part 2, you have to end with our heroes at a low point. Right, exactly. And this is... The, that's very Empire, yeah. And this is the low point for the trio of... Right, yeah. But Scott, how did you rate this movie, Part 1? So I rate Part 1 tentatively. Tentatively, a, fine, fine. Tentatively at a 4 out of 5. Alright, that is that is fair. I rate it as a 5 out of 5. I really love this movie is it a basically a setup for the finale yes but i do think that it does a great job of setting up a lot of things while also keeping you invested in the story and yes as scott said there were things that popped up certain characters certain details that maybe were neglected in previous movies that seemed to come out of nowhere but I'm speaking as a Harry Potter fan, someone who's read the books, so I'm just more inclined to let shit like that go. So, unfortunately, we're not going to be doing part two right away. We got to wait one more month to finish out this franchise. Then after that, we will be starting another monthly series to finish out the year. It's not going to be Fantastic Beasts, so don't get your hopes up for that. I don't know why anyone's hopes would be up for that, because as we've mentioned multiple times, those movies suck. But (laughs) next week, I'm going to be showing Scott a movie that is fucking batshit insane, but it's also really fucking cool. So I'm excited about that. Oh, boy. But until then, this has been Shoot the Flick, an official Paradoja podcast. I'm Frankie Sparks. And I'm Scott Eisenberg. Make sure you check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Shoot the Flick. And check out our weekly episodes every single Wednesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio, and pretty much anywhere else you can find a podcast. And make sure you come back next week for our splendiferous, fantastical movie adventure. We must unite so we can fight Turn the battle around Time's running out It's time to shout